discovery is said to be an accident meeting a prepared mind. But every story behind a discovery is different. Perhaps the idea is conceived in a light bulb moment or a brainstorming session or captured in scribblings on the back of a napkin. Here, we introduce you to scientific pioneers taking you beyond their publication and into Innovation Corner to hear the untold stories behind their discoveries. This podcast is brought to you by Biotechni, and I'm your host, Alex Maloney. Our guest today is Jennifer Petter. Jen is someone who's paved her way through a career in academia, biotech, and pharma, working her way to the very top of the game, where she now sits as founder and chief innovation officer at Arrakis Therapeutics. Jen's a medicinal chemist by background, and you'll hear her described as one of the best in the business. Now, well outside the lab, Jen has formed an all-star team at Arrakis, focused on a new problem, that is, targeting RNA with small molecules. So, if you heard the previous episode with Matt Disney, you were probably, like me, enormously inspired by the proof-of-concept work Matt has done showing that RNA can be targeted with small molecules. Well, Jen was too, back in 2015, where she came across the trailblazing work from Matt and others like Kevin Weeks at a conference. Energized by this new area, Jen stepped up to take this modality to the next level and started working on RNA-targeting small molecule drugs. Now, when Jen talks, people listen. She's hugely charismatic, knowledgeable, talented, thoughtful, and was such a fantastic guest on the podcast. We discuss lots here, like Jen's time and early successes in biotech and pharma, the story behind Arrakis, that's the company, not the sci-fi planet, although that did come into it a little too. We spoke about the processes of starting a company and getting this off the ground, and also what Jen thinks the biggest advancements in drug discovery will be in the next 10 years. On top of this, Jen also gives a very open insight into a big transition she formally announced back in 2018. This was that she was a transgender woman and would no longer be known as Russell Petter. She would now have the pronoun she, her, and be Jennifer. So let's get to it. Welcome to Back of the Napkin. Okay, Jennifer Petter, uh, great to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Okay, now, Jen, this is a science podcast, but before we dive into this, I've got to ask you something that I um, read in a, a CNN article about your dogs, and that's that oh, you've, yeah. got, you've got 17 dogs, 16 of which are Border Collies. Is that right? So close. So I've managed to get the number down to 13. Um, and they're, they're not, strictly speaking, border collies. They're like regular lassie collies. Um, and um, so, yes, and I show them, I breed them. Um, it's been a consuming passion for the entirety of my life. Uh, and so, and it, as I have occasionally said to people, it keeps me out of trouble and off the streets. <laughs> so my parents, um, they always had border collies, so these were. Um, border collies and I know I know they're smart dogs yeah yeah I say I was raised around border collies but I think it's sometimes more appropriate to say I was raised by border collies they were that smart Um, but yeah (laughs) anyway okay this isn't a dog podcast so let's get on to to some science so it'd be good then to lay the foundations for for this discussion about your journey through science so 
to begin with then what was the moment you got into science was there was there a, a catalyst here and go back as far as you want you know it's hard to say but i can say that i usually as a very young child you know science things um um were very motivating for me so i remember when at the years ago when i was about four or so my my father was a chaplain in the navy and was stationed in san diego and my parents took me up the hill to the palomar mount palomar observatory where there it was this brand new 200 inch uh reflector telescope you know just gigantic and you know you go into this thing and let's just say made an impression um and also, that was the point at which which Disneyland was open. Disney World was still a twinkle in Walt Disney's eye. Um, and, you know, the monorail was there, so futuristic. And, again, uh, and truth be told, I, when I wasn't able to go on the monorail a second time, I think I had a meltdown um, uh, right there at Disneyland. So even at a very young age, you know, things about the future, I, I think that maybe some of that came from, you know, I was kind of a Sputnik, Sputnik child. I was born in 56 and Sputnik went up in 57. And, and the whole country was a buzz about this. And I, I think it made an impression on me. So then when you, I guess, formally start your scientific career, um, you go to college and you get an AB in chemistry. So what made you kind of hone in on, on chemistry? <laughs> So the truth was I didn't like chemistry. <laughs> um, I wanted to do like molecular biology, and but I, I'd heard that the teaching in the molecular the biology department there was like not so exciting, and that you need to learn a lot of chemistry anywhere. So I just, anyway, so I decided to suck it up and and just double down on the chemistry, which had a good teaching reputation. Um, and so, um, but then I got into organic chemistry, and just you know had a revelation because it wasn't as mathematical as physics which had you know captivated me as a kid but by the fourth semester of calculus i was like done you know i like it stopped being easy and biology was a huge amount of memorization which i actually not opposed to i think that that's a perfect people knock that but i actually think that's a perfectly reasonable pathway you got to know stuff and and reach some critical mass but it was i was struggling with that uh, whereas chemistry was that, particularly organic chemistry, was that nice sort of middle ground. It certainly had the sort of intense logic of the physical sciences, but also this sort of mass of knowledge that you applied it to. And, yeah. uh, and it's also very pictorial, graphic, and aesthetic, which definitely worked for me. So I, I really found myself literally in a course in college. I, I, I made that, that choice. Yeah, so it must have made an impression then for you to then go on and do um, a PhD oh, yeah. in chemistry. Um, yeah. So where, where did you do that? I went to Duke, Duke University. So I went to Dartmouth for college and, and then went to Duke University. I'd done some undergraduate research and really enjoyed that. I, in fact, I enjoyed the research more than I enjoyed the courses. Uh, and then at Duke, um, uh, really got, I got into a, a great group with Ned, Ned Porter, who was at Duke at the time. And then you continued a career in uh, academia for some time doing a, a postdoc. Is that right? Yeah, I, um, I went up to, um, I got some nice fellowships and ended up going to Columbia University uh, to work for Ron Breslow. In the 80s, Columbia was the absolute top place in the world to do organic chemistry. So I was very fortunate to be able to go there. 
um, and kind of measure yourself against the best. Um, and um, so I had a, had a great time there, uh, and then managed to, to to because I was at that institution, I managed to pull in a, an academic job that was pretty promising. But then you transition over to industry in '91. So what what caused this this move? <laughs> In um, in academics, it is up or out, honey, and um, I uh, I didn't get promoted, so got plenty of money. I was doing very well on getting uh, funding in, um, but translating that funding into papers, um, I don't think I quite appreciated the importance of what we now call the minimum publishable unit, uh, which I might I might have wanted to explore that a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> so uh you know i in some ways i maybe i absorbed too much of what my mentors had which was that you know you wait until you've got the really a great story and publish this great paper which is not a timing plan that works well for an assistant professor so um so i didn't get promoted and you know you know the the academic opportunities at other institutions that were apparent to me just didn't look great so um, I ended up finding a job at Sandoz Pharmaceuticals, which of course became part of uh, Novartis uh, when they merged with SIBA, uh, um, and 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 really had a blast. So you know, it's one of these things where at, I will tell you at the time I wanted to be promoted desperately, and it was tragic that I didn't get promoted. Although, but in retrospect, awesome. Yeah, well, you know, it's it, we can certainly look back uh, now and say that. But so at the at the time then, when you go into that role at Sandoz, did you kind of sit down and write a new plan and say, okay, well, <laughs> this is my journey to the top? No, no. <laughs> There's never been a plan. I mean, <laughs> I mean, as an academic, the plan was get promoted, become a famous scientist. And that was kind of it. That was the plan. All right. And, um, and in industry, you know, I was, I was, when I was at Sandoz, I was too early on even to know enough about an industrial path, even to write a plan, were I a plan writer, right? Uh, which I frankly tend not to be. Um, rather, I took a very different approach, you know? So first of all, when you come out of academics, everyone sort of has this view that you're very smart and you have this glorious position. You're going to be kind of, uh, well, difficult uh, when you when you move into industry. I uh, very strove not to be difficult, Um and um, this, is, this is just went into the lab, turned on the radio, made compounds, had a blast. But eventually people point at you and say, wait, you seem pretty sharp. Why don't you run this? Why don't you run that? So I moved very rapidly through the organization um, and, and moved up rather quickly. Um, but not because of any plan. Just because like what people would say, would you like to try this? I go, yeah, sure. Sounds great. <laughs> so it's been, frankly, most of my life. <laughs> so... Anyway, but so that's, but I, be, I began to understand while I was there what the differences were and how maybe I should think about the path a little differently. Yeah, yeah. Start to see more of the, the commercial applications of, sure. of what can be done, right? Okay. Uh, so you were there for about five years, is that right? And then moved to, to Biogen. So this is, yeah. a, this is a pretty, pretty big leap. Yeah. So a couple of things. One, this, this change was my idea. So this is, I moved right about the time that um, that the merger was really getting going. We were getting to meet the SIBA people, et cetera. And no one was being fired, but uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, there's a lot of turbulence, and it just seemed 
like it might be a little dreary for a while. And reports are that it was. Um, and my family was all up in the Boston area and had been for quite a while. And my my life relationships had begun to change in terms of of the first marriage having sort of gone away and the second marriage sort of being on the horizon. Um, and so moving seemed like the thing to do. Plus, um, Biogen at that point um, had just launched um, Avanex, their first drug, and mm-hmm. uh, was moving into small molecules, and that looked exciting. So it wasn't quite a startup, all right, but it was definitely a different world. And you you show it up, and you, although you do small molecules, you have to learn to speak protein. <laughs> okay, yeah. So what sort of projects did you work on at Biogen? Because you were here for a while, right? Yeah, I was there for nine years. So the so the first project was actually work on um, inhibitors of the VLA4 integrin. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, I, I should say in the 90s, everybody was working on integrins. Every single pharma company in the world had at least one, if not two or three integrin teams. They were hot, hot, hot. And so I actually worked on VLA4 at both Sandoz and then later at Biogen. Um, but the approaches were so different that there was like no overlap whatsoever. They worked on quite a few other projects. Many of them sort of came from the biologics teams in which, you know, like they found a biology they liked, but they really wanted to go after it with small molecules. Um, I worked on ADCs. I worked on the total synthesis of proteins. I worked on um, um, some very difficult to drug targets like NER1 and TNF-alpha um, and uh, and got some collaborations started with Sunesis that were designed to help, you know, make that work better. So you mentioned ADCs then. So this was this around the time that they were becoming becoming big? No, it was in the lull. All right. So there was that whole thing with Mylotarg and we were going to save the world with ADCs. Uh, and then, of course, you know, that didn't go very well. Uh, and that was in the 80s. 80s to 90s. And so, you know, in the hype curve, ADCs were kind of not great. On the other hand, Biogen was in a particularly good position to make antibodies and biologics and um, and to identify tumor-specific antigens. And so it seemed like a sweet spot for them to kind of play. And so, you know, my job was to work with those teams and find, you know, low, you know modification sites, modification chemistries, linkers, chemistry, um, work on the warheads, what those might be, how we would, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it was long before, you know, you know, was it two years ago or three years ago? There was some some very recent presentation at ASCO on the AIR2 uh, antibody, mm-hmm. a- a- ADC, standing ovation, mm-hmm. right, from the uh, from those data. So, you know, ADCs have very much come into their own right now, as well they should, but I think that's because the technology has been largely worked out. But we were working at it in that in the dark period. So your next move then, you go to Masana, and they've got this the Flexima technology, right? Yeah. So this lent itself very well to ADC. So did that have anything to do with the move? Yeah, at the time I wasn't. We didn't have that while I was there. Okay. Yeah. So what what did you do at Masana, and what was the? It seems like you had a good a good deal at Biogen. What was the the reason for the move? Well, this was now this was switching back to departures that were not my idea. So okay. because there was, so if you look at the history there, Tasabri um, was an antibody for MS that, um, an anti-VLA4 antibody mm-hmm. for MS 
um, that was approved on interim phase three data um, showed a, a very bad safety signal with PML. And so it was pulled from the market. Um, eventually, they figured out how to deal with this and get it back on the market. It's been doing a lot of good. But in the meantime, Biogen had to take back to the store all that stuff they'd bought on the Tassabri credit card and decided to back off on small molecules. And so 650 people were laid off in September of 2005, and I was among them. Um, and, you know, I think part of the, you know, so about 55% of the small molecule team was left. I think they figured, look, it's fine, but, but she's going to find another. Like, if we take all those people away, she's going to leave anyway. So <laughs> just give her a package, let her go. Um, and so my boss was, was Mike Gilman. And so how should I put it? He laid me off and then promptly got himself laid off too. Um, so, so left there in September of 05, started at Mersan, I think in January, February of 06. At the time, it was this, the Fleximer was this very uh, large uh, or water-soluble, biodegradable um, polymer. And the concept at the time was to make, in essence, polymeric prodrugs. So you would affix some drug with a release mechanism that had a, where, where the toxicity could reasonably be attributed to its poor distribution. Uh, like to the brain or to some other uh, organs. Uh, and then that polymer would tend to concentrate the drug in the tumors and where also the lower pH would promote the, the, the release either from the, from the liquor mechanism or in some cases just dissolve the polymer so all that's left is the drug. Um, I mean, it worked, right? I mean, they had Campothecan in the clinic when I showed up and I helped move that along. And then I was the one who produced this XMT 1107, which was a TNP 470 derivative. Um, and so, you know, it was a nice technology. Uh, we were working with people to use it as a way to link things to proteins. But, you know, <laughs> light never dawned on marble head that, that how awesome an application um, Fleximer was as a linker for ADCs. And um, it, it, that, that credit really has to go to Tim Lowinger for because we talked about it. But Tim was the one who really appreciated the potential impact of that. Yeah, it seems like a really neat technology that addresses a lot of, of problems, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so you were there at Masana for a while, and then the next page was uh, over to Avila. Yeah. So how, how did that happen? Well, what happened was that some of the people who also had been laid off from Biogen, um, <laughs> there's no life without death. So laid <laughs> off from Biogen. <laughs> Like had gotten together and said, "Hey, we want to make a company. We're gonna we're gonna design irreversible inhibitors for all kinds of proteins, kinases, proteases, uh, uh, receptors, all kinds of things." Um, and we had known each other at Biogen, and and they contacted me, and I, said, I knew these folks, and I I um um, um and you know, Mersan, I, I I you know, it was fine, but it really wasn't an opportunity to do drug design. Right. So it was good, honest work, but it really wasn't drug design. And whereas Avila offered the opportunity to do drug design. So I moved over to Avila to, to do that. It was a lot of fun. And how many people were at Avila at the time? How big was the company? Well, each of those companies, Mersana and then um, um, Avila, I was employed 10. Okay. So, yeah. so Avila already had the A round and they had gotten the A round um, somewhere in the spring springs winter or spring of 07 and i started with them in september of 07 yeah right so um 
obviously one of the programs that stuck out for Avila then was the AVL 292 program um, for the covalent inhibitor against BTK. Was this one that, that you were working on? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And is it ultimately this program that led to the acquisition by, by Celgene? Yes. Um, I mean, they were interested in the platform, but they were – so Celgene had made a play for uh, ibrutinib, uh, mm-hmm. but they didn't, didn't get it, but felt it was very much in line with the kinds of, of sort of the franchises they wanted to build. Uh, and so when we had something on the table, they were very interested. They, you know, originally there was discussion about a more of a collaboration or a licensing deal, but eventually um, uh, it just became more of a total um, acquisition yeah. approach. Uh, that was one of the other one that actually made some progress was uh, the EGFR mutant selective uh, inhibitor that went to Clovis. So both of those got some airtime. Yeah. Okay. So this acquisition then, this must have been a really exciting time for everyone at, yeah. at Avila. Yeah. Um, so what happened then? Talk me through the, the the this acquisition. How? What was the deal for people that were were there? So you know you you have to keep this fairly quiet, but then eventually it comes out. So I think we announced on January thirtieth of two thousand twelve. Uh, and then it was actually consummated about nine weeks later. Um, and, you know, the cool thing was, on the one hand, they were they were acquiring us, and they, they clearly wanted to take the, the drug and move it forward. Um, but they also wanted the company and the platform, so they weren't getting rid of anybody. They actually wanted us. So we became, you know, essentially Celgene in Massachusetts. Um, so, like, you know, you get that liquidity event from the company being acquired, and you know everyone got vested and, and got their 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 uh, uh, amounts of money that were appropriate for their their stock holding, and you also still had a job, which was yeah. great, you know. So um, so yeah, I, I, not everyone was into it. You know, some people have a very strong view about wanting to work for a small company and startup, and so working for Celgene really wasn't their thing. So they they headed out. Um, you know, I'm more of a switch hitter. You know, you. I think that small companies, big companies, they're both great places to work. Um, they, they're different. You know, you, they're like playing different instruments. You you have to approach them differently, and, and, and they have different problems to solve. But uh, they're both good places. So I had a great time at Celgene. So they offer you the role of um, is it VP of um, of chemistry at yeah. Celgene? So was that did that happen um, at the same time as the acquisition? Or was- no, it took a, like, a few months. I think it took them a few months to kind of look me over and <laughs> yeah. see if they like what they saw. <laughs> so, it's fine. So, um, and you know, also there there were some other sort of org chart issues that that needed to be dealt with in order to make that happen. The early parts of which were prior to my awareness, and then the latter parts of which I, I had to, to to participate in. Um, but yeah, so and to be clear, this was the discovery chemistry. You know, that was yeah. completely separate from the um, from the development group. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So then it gets to 2015, and you hand in your notice and head for Pastures New. Yeah. So you know, I, I like Celgene. Good people. Good team. Good company. Um, but you know, it's one of the, it was one of these companies that had. The headquarters in, I had 100 people working for me, half of whom were in 
San Diego. Half of them were in Massachusetts. And then <coughs> headquarters in New Jersey. We had quarterly meetings in San Francisco and San Diego and Seattle and God knows where. A lot of air miles. Yeah, and then you have you can't skip ASCO and ACR and ASH. You have to go to these things. Yeah. These, and then JP Morgan. So you, you know, you're all like I was out of the house sixty five percent of the time. My kids were old enough to notice I was missing and young enough to care, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so although the remuneration was very was great, it was uh, it was just I think I live in Boston. It's like Hollywood. There's a hot new company that looks exciting every six weeks. Like there has got to be something fun I can do here. So. Um, so it was really with that in mind, make no animosity, no un- unhappiness with the team. Just yeah, I needed yeah. to do something different. Yeah. So, so there, was yeah, no, I, there was no plan then when you when you left. That? There was no plan when you left. It was you know this. It's time. Yeah, to notions. There were notions, but there yeah, was no okay. plan. Um, yeah. You know. So I, I slid in my letter, and I was nominally retiring because I'd hit a couple numbers, mm-hmm. um, and that was in in. May of 2015. Um, I So nominally, I was supposed to stay through November, but they let me go by August. So that was nice. But you're right. I sort of had a notion, you know, there's some people I knew who were in the VC community. <clears throat> I could go chat to them, see if there's yeah. something fun I could do to help or, you know. I imagine you had a good uh, list of contacts from your... It's longer now, but there were, there were enough people to talk to, it, you know, and I had some nice conversations. Okay, so... I uh, I read one of the blogs on uh, Arax's website about um, kind of the moment that this this is created, uh, and it it seemed to lean on a on a key moment in 2015 at a, a Gordon conference. So can you tell me about this? Yeah. So um, so again, like letter in May, and then I already arranged to go to this Gordon conference. It was a Gordon conference on high throughput chemistry and high, uh, and and chemical biology. Uh, and there was a session there uh, on RNA and small molecules. And I'm sitting through this session just thinking, I did not get the email. We're, <laughs> this is a thing? We are doing this? <laughs> I'm, first, so first of all, embarrassed that I hadn't really heard about this. But second, I'm very excited. Like, I want to do that. I have a whole closet full of kinase T-shirts from teams and blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's fine. I don't need to do that anymore. But to drug RNA with small molecules just struck me as great. And I should say I wanted to do this. It wasn't that I knew what the answer was or that I thought anyone else had the answer. It's because I liked the problem. Yeah. Um, so that was that was really the – and what's funny is that this coming July, I have been invited to talk at that Gordon conference. So that should be fun. Wow. So it's gone full circle. So w- what was being presented then at this conference? Because 2015, this is still pretty early on in. Yeah, so it was, it was Matt Disney and Kevin Weeks, um, Matt, Matt Stanton, who at Moderna, you know, back when we used to all think, deliver mRNA? That's crazy talk. But, you know, probably the, the, the ones that were the most striking were the talks by Kevin and Matt. Um, and so so I spent the rest of the Gordon conference, you know, I didn't do any of the sports things in the afternoon. I just went to the library at the Colby Sawyer College and looked up all of Matt Disney's papers and Kevin Weeks's papers and read them all. Ah, very good. So at, at this point then, were you open to starting a company? Is that is that something that was kind of in the, in the back of your mind? Is that? It was on the menu. Yeah. Um, and, you, you know, I hadn't done it before, but um, I knew the kind of people who had done that and I could kind of lean on them. 
Um, so although I'd had some conversations with people who had companies where, you know, kind of the table's already set, um, but the idea of being uh, uh, working on a clear table was, was, was appealing to me. Let's then dive into this, this next chapter then, which is Arrakis Therapeutics. So uh, it would be remiss of me not to get you to firstly explain um, the thought behind the name uh, Arrakis Therapeutics. I'm a big gene fan. I've read the books, um, but more for listeners who maybe haven't. Can you, uh, yeah, and don't hold back on the sci-fi references either. All right, so here we go. First of all, um, following that June thing, I, I talked to some friends and they put me back. I mean, I, and I ended up talking to Raj Parekh, who's a managing partner at Advent Life Sciences, which is a British VC firm, and they had been involved with Avala. So that man had made some money on me um, and was willing to do breakfast. And it turns out that uh, Advent had already been thinking very deeply about RNA and small molecules for about a year. And so, you know, startup companies are like a ham and eggs breakfast. The chicken participates, but the pig is committed. <laughs> and I self-identify as a pig. So, I, you know, here I'm sitting in front of him at breakfast, like I'm ready to do this, like just to start this right now. And so um, by the end of that breakfast in July of 15, I had $2 million, one and a half from Advent Life Sciences and half a million from Henry Tremier. Uh, and we got started with seed money. Uh, and so I actually left the company about four weeks later and, um, and, you know, we got going. Now, it turns out that there had been a previous entity looking at microRNAs that uh, Advent had produced. They wanted to dissolve that and to create something new. And some, like, some associate from, uh, from Advent called me up and said, hey, we need a name. What do you want to call the company? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Pause. Sidebar. So it turns out I've been thinking about company names, blah, blah, blah. And I noticed I was looking at uh, these uh, WDR proteins, which are these propeller proteins. And when you look at the X-ray structures, these WDR, when you look at them in a certain way, <clears throat> to my geeky mind, they look like the maw of a sandworm. Yeah. So I thought. A sandworm being the massive creature in. Exactly. The, I'm in, sorry. The yeah. sandworm being the massive creatures that flow, that swim under the sand and actually are responsible for making spice. I will come back to that. So I thought the mall, and that, so that just kind of planted the seed in my mind. And so then, when they asked me what kind of company, what what do you want to do? For the name of the company? I said, uh, 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 "How about Arrakis? A double R A K I S." They said, "Okay, that sounds good. We'll get back to you." <laughs> <laughs> or maybe something more like, "Sounds lovely. We'll get back to you." <laughs> so, we don't next, all speak like that. Here. Yeah, well, no, no, no. these two did. Um, so the next day they said, "Yeah, it sounds great. We'll go with that." So that was that was the entire decision making process. Now, getting back to the question you asked, well, where the heck does it come from? So there was a novel published in two, in 1965, exactly 50 years before the formation of Arrakis, by Frank Herbert called Dune, and Dune is one of two names for the planet Arrakis, Arrakis or Dune. They're the same, um, and it's about the, it's a galactic empire. There's a lot of fighting over Dune because although it looks pretty barren, it actually produces one thing the empire needs desperately, and that is spice. Why do they need it? Because they have a certain group of people called Mentats, where if they take the spice, they can guide starships through the galaxy, and without it, we're all lost. So it's an indispensable thing, you know, somewhat like today, you know, a sandy country that has something we all need, like oil. Um, and so th this house comes in to, to kind of shake things up for the emperor. And then Paul, um, Paul Atreides, who's the son, the scion of this family, uh, ends up in the desert and learning about spice. And spice is this psychotropic drug. It penetrates the CNS. It's 
Already available, yeah. Orally available, transdermal for that matter. Um, and it's the only product of Arrakis is this drug, which is indispensable. So I'm thinking, there's that's good karma, you know, a, com- a planet that looks barren but actually produces a drug. That's like a startup company. So let's do that. Um, and so, yeah, uh, that's how the, the we got the name Arrakis. And, you know, we have some fun with it. We, we don't – I don't think we overdo it, but we have some fun with sort of the, the themes and language and imagery of the, of the book. And, that, yeah. and the fact that the movie came out com- like the, in 2015, there was not even a rumor of that. So it was just yeah. accidental co-marketing. Yeah. And this came out in the, during the pandemic. Uh, we rented, we rented um, uh, out an entire um, theater so that the whole team <laughs> could go see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet they, um, when they had the kind of like the reserved name that said reserved for Arrakis therapeutics, people were like, wow, <laughs> you guys must really uh, be excited by the film. That's right. It's like a whole company doing cosplay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, very good. Um, so it sounds like you, you've got off to a great start here then. You've got kind of um, venture guys on side already. You've secured your first um, bit of funding um, and now in this, this article I read on, uh, on Arrakis's website, the blog about, you know, you need to, to have a great team, you need great leaders. Uh, you speak about the first year being all about building this team. So how did you kind of sit down and decide about this team? Was this like a, a back of the napkin? Like we'll have this person here, we'll have Mike Gilman as head of the, the Fremen. Was that how it, was that how it went? Yeah. So no, the only thing that napkins f- figured into this is I usually, I usually recruit people over lunch. Um, so. Good way to do it. Yeah. But, you know, it's more, it's, it's a little more tactical than that. Cause you know, like who's available that, you know, et cetera. But it's like, you know, you, you ever saw the blues brothers, you know, it's Man. like, we'll get the band back together again. Yeah. So, you know, a number of the, the people I recruited were people that I had worked with before in the past. So I pulled in Dan Kerwer, who um, I had worked, he'd been uh, head of research operations at Biogen and, and, and had, you know, left there and gone and become the CBO over at Bind Therapeutics. And, you know, the whole thing with Bind was winding down. So he was looking for something to do. So he was glad to help out. Um, Heather and I had worked very closely at Avila and then Celgene. Um, and she was just a the queen of operations. Uh, and so when she felt sufficiently recovered from cell gene, she was willing to come in and help out. Kumar was a, a chemistry person whom I, who actually postdoc for me at Pitt. Uh, and we'd worked together at a couple companies. And so he also uh, um, uh, joined in on the chemistry side. Um, I asked around and I found uh, Jim Barstom. We had overlapped at Biogen. We didn't overlap. We, we didn't like our work didn't help. We weren't on teams together, but I knew who he was and people had really liked him. And I needed a, you know, card carrying molecular biologist here. Uh, and he was coming out of Rana Therapeutics doing some consulting. And so he was willing to help out. And then, um, um, and then Mike, uh, Mike Gilman, we had already we, fairly early on, we pulled him onto the board of directors as an independent director. Uh, but then Alan Waltz and I, you know, did some kind of Punch and Judy show where ultimately we managed to 
twist his arm and, and to get him to join as CEO. And that was in the fall of 16. And that turned out to be a catalytic moment for the A-round investors. Like once he was on board, everyone was calmed. Not that they didn't like me, but, you know, like real money, you need a real CEO. It's like, it's great. Because I was CEO at the time. And it's like, we got Mike. It's like, it's all yours. Have a great time. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so, yeah, it was more about sort of pulling together people that, and this is the thing is that, and this is a this is a good thing and a bad thing, but pulling together people that you know, because in a in a startup company you have no time for mistakes, right? You have to pull in people that you know can do the job. Of course, the problem is that this tends to cement in a certain, you know, sameness within leadership mm. teams, um, and so it can be. So the maybe the important thing here is you should try to know some more people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, good, good, good tip. <laughs> Different people. <laughs> you kind of touched on a question um, there that I was, I was going to ask you, and that was about, you know, you've, you've got this team together, um, but of course you're going to need some more money. You've got to go back out to, to investors. And now you've got to pitch an idea, which is RNA targeting small molecules, probably a concept that a lot of them haven't heard about. Um, and from what I hear, these guys don't really like parting with their cash. So you've got to be pretty convincing. Was it having that team, that all-star team that they're like, well, if, if these guys are doing it, then you know, I'm going to put my money there. Or did you have to sell the idea to them as well? Oh, uh, yeah. No, you still had to sell the idea. You, you're right. You did take off the table, the, the anxiety that whether these people can even do anything that they're talking about. There were people willing to look at the team and go, yeah, if anyone can do it, these folks can do it. So let so that's fine. So I so I think it helped a lot. But yeah, you had to go into a lot of these rooms and people just looked at you like you were crazy. Like, what are you talking about? You know, because they had a very sort of, you know, college, you know, cell biology experience or, or understanding of how it is that RNA was structured. And they didn't really appreciate that it was folded and, and, and had pockets and things like this. They're like, wait, what? So... I mean, in some ways, they were having the same experience that I was having in that session at the Gordon Conference. They're like, <laughs> really? Um, and even though you know, the people in the RNA world had known about this for years, like it just wasn't they, – they, they had not yet cultivated a, a habit or a thought of applying their sciences to therapeutic challenges. And when they did, it was all these linear oligos where you don't have to yeah. – you don't have to – where actually the structure such as it is is a problem, not a, not a, not a, not a solution. So yes, we had to do a lot of talking. On the other hand, what was ultimately appealing for this, <laughs> you know, they say about, about investors, it's always this, this a two-sided placard. It's like fear and greed. So the fear <laughs> is that it's just not going to work. The greed part is realizing that RNA is upstream of all biology and it remains an unsolved problem, a completely undiscovered country. All biology. In fact, there are more RNA targets by a lot than there are protein targets. Um, so to the extent that you can crack this problem, the upside is, is just gigantic. So yeah, there are right. people who are eventually able to sort of get their head around that. The, the wheels have been turning then, uh, Arrakis, you've had some fantastic momentum in your funding. You've had series A, series B, you've got, uh, collaborations with Roche, uh, and Amgen. Mm-hmm. Um, now Roche in particular, the, these guys, are you know, the first company to specifically have an, uh, a small molecule approved that targets an RNA. So 
um, I'm sure people are kind of turning their heads and looking, say, okay, this is, wow, a real uh, all-star all kind of collaboration here. So how, how did these come about? Like, You know, so this is, you know, it's funny. You know, look at the arc of discussions that we had at Avala Therapeutics, just to reach back for a moment. So at Avala Therapeutics, the general tone or, or sort of a cadence of those conversations was, Oh, we we know you can make these irreversible inhibitors. We just don't think it's a good idea. So now, now help us understand why we should think it's a good idea. With Arrakis, the conversations were more like, we think this is a spectacular idea and you should definitely give it a shot. We just don't think you're going to be able to do it. Right? So, so those conversations are more like trying to explain to people why it is you think it's actually going to work. All right. What you discover, like with Avalon, what you discover is by the time you've been at it five years, when you then when you went into meetings, people already like, yeah, yeah, th- we have some specific questions, but we kind of buy the concept. And the same thing happened with RNA is that by the time you're talking to Roche, right? So this is now 2019. So you've been at this for four years. Um, yeah. They got in the email, right? Particularly because Roche had already had that, that, that time, that compound in development. Um, and so, so they were already believers, and they just needed to be persuaded that we knew what the hell we were doing, uh, that we could be, you know, part of that. So, but other companies had also gotten the the, the message, and so we were in the very fortunate position of being one of the leading leading companies in this field, in a field that suddenly became red hot. Uh, and so, we got a number of different term sheets, um, all kind of at the same time. And we're able to make a, a choice. Like we really never knocked on anybody's door. Um, it was it was very fortunate. Um, and I understand that that is not typical and probably not sustainable, right? Um, as they say on Project Runway, sometimes you're hot and later you're not. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but we picked the one that we thought would be, the, you know, the best partner and we would learn things from them as well as them learning from us and where uh, they had the resources to, to advance programs and they had the experience of advancing such programs. And frankly, where the upfront was such that it would really be transformative for how we developed this company. And so um, they really checked all the boxes. It was wonderful. I think this kind of brings me to this question about innovation then. And you've obviously worked in big companies, smaller startup companies. How does innovation look in in each of these? In the, the smaller ones, do you have kind of more free reign to, you know, go a little more out there with an idea? Like, what does it look like? So oddly enough, no, you don't really. Or let me, so to my, from my perspective, which not shared by everybody, but my perspective is that there are some, there are some expectations which need to be turned on their head. So first of all, large companies, innovation happens a lot, but it tends to happen in these sort of skunk work projects. In some ways, you can even say that the, that the scientists in the, are doing for the company what the company desperately needs, despite the company's best efforts to stop them. All right. So, um, so there are just many occasions where the company benefits from, from something ultimately flowering that they were sort of attempting to wipe out on, you know, intentionally or even sometimes unintentionally. Uh, over a period of years. Uh, so it does happen, but it, you, you're, you're very much swimming upstream. Um, but part of that is because the company's so large, they can't really monitor what everyone's doing. Uh, and so it's possible for you to be very much a free agent in a larger company, as long as you've got a couple of enablers who like, you know, 
she's doing something interesting. We'll 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 say this and this in the reviews and 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 protect her for a while. So uh, in contrast, smaller companies, yeah, everybody's got to be pulling their oar in the same direction. So the innovation in some ways has to be baked into the strategy. It's not typically something where like, well, we're just going to make a drug. Has anyone got any ideas? No. <laughs> Whereas in some ways, pharma companies, like we're going to make a drug. Anybody got any ideas? Small companies, <laughs> the idea is that. And so you really kind of have to adhere to that. And so there's not a lot of room for people to just go off and try stuff. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But the result, though, is that you are, by the same token, insofar as the original founding idea is in and of itself innovative, then you have an entire group which is tied, do or die, to making that particular innovation succeed. Uh, and that's something that is missing in the large companies. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, so let's talk about one of the innovations then that's come out of uh, Arrakis. And this is actually uh, how I came across um, across your company. And this was when you published the Pearl Seek paper oh, yeah. on ACS ChemBio. Um, so maybe for the listeners, you could... Uh, describe what the kind of the problem was in RNA targeting, um, sorry, small molecules targeting RNA that this RNA seek addressed because it was quite a fundamental problem. And it was a really nice uh, method. Um, thank you. Uh, yeah. So you know, so here you go. You long. You, you go to the trouble of identifying a gene that you care about and finding the RNA structures that appear to be in the in in the cell. There's a lot of probing techniques for doing that, which is probing probing followed by RNA-seq is a nice way to demonstrate that a target is actually there in the cell, which is great. So you find something says, well, I like this, this stretch of 110 nucleotides, and so I'm going to make this stretch synthetically and or by IBT, and then I'm going to fold it and demonstrate that it also it recapitulates here the same structure that I have in the cell. So, all right, this is great. So then you're going to screen against it and find molecules that bind to the synthetic RNA. And there, thereby, you believe, to the extent that that structure recapitulates the endogenous structure, that the ligands that bind to it will also bind to the endogenous structure. However, while it's adorable to have such a belief, it's not the same thing as knowing. And so the purpose of, uh, of PearlSeq is a chemical biology method meant to establish target engagement in the cells. That I mean, it also has other benefits, but that is the principal driving force. And so what you do is you make a probe, which you take your ligand, you add a tether, which in and of itself it sounds very easy, but it can be, in and of itself can be challenging, finding the exit vector, et cetera. And then you attach a photo warhead to it and you expose it to the RNA. Uh, and then you photolyze uh, the photolysis, much like photo affinity labeling of proteins should lead to a irreversible covalent modification of the RNA. And then if you perform RNA-seq, that modification is likely to uh, impede the function of the, uh, the reverse transcriptase. It will either run across this and fall off or it will proceed through, but, but the fidelity of, of incorporation will be lost. It will, it will read as a mutation. Now, um, I should emphasize that we are not the first persons to do photoaffinity labeling in RNA-seq, okay? Um, there, like, there was some work on linezolid. There's some analogy to this to some of the stuff that Matt uh, did. 
But you know, the, what we brought to this was to really use a lot of next-gen sequencing um, to make this very industrialized. You could do this robustly again and again and again to really get into the, to the issues about, say, taking the parent ligand and doing competition studies, um, really to sort of bring those methods that had been reported into the fold of sort of industrial chemical biology, which is now actually a very critical path um, uh, on the protein side. We wanted to do that for the RNA side as well. Um, and so we continue to do this, use this method routinely. Um, you know, we're constantly refining it, but we, we use this all the time. Um, so that's, uh, that's how we got there. So what Matt does in kind of academia and what goes on in kind of biotech, they're kind of two different strands, really. We see a lot more publications come out in academia, of, of course, and uh, in biotech, not so much. So what was the kind of decision here then was to, to publish this in the, in the public domain? Was it to kind of um, empower more people to get into this area and you know, give some more more tools to the community? Was that, was that the thinking? I, you know, it was a couple of things. One is that uh, it had been done in collaboration. There, there's um, Dave Chenoweth is a co-author from Penn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and some of the guys at Vipergen uh, had been, uh, were also co-authors. Um, and so, you know, the, so there are parties there who, who want to see this kind of thing get out. Another is um, that it was a model system that we published. The model system was using an aptamer that had originally been prepared and described by um, and, and M.G. Finn, who at the time was at Scripps, but is now, I want to say University of Georgia. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so it, you know, because it was a model system, it was kind of walled off from everything we were doing, so it made it more straightforward. Um but I think also to give the, the, the folks on the team a little more exposure. Um, and there's a follow-up article in Methods, which provides a little more detail. Um, we we will start publishing more in the next year or so. Um, but, you know, we're also acutely aware that, that for us, a paper is not the key deliverable. The key deliverable is a drug. So you've you got to stay focused on that and occasionally get out there and and you know, describe some of your science in a way that's going to be helpful to people. It's a very big field. We don't mind if other people join in. Like the more, the merrier. I and I'm sure many others will be um, very keenly looking for for these uh, these papers to come out. Um, okay, so let's let's get on then to to the pipeline that Arrakis uh, have got on their website. So you've got this technology, and sky's the limit, right? I see. Uh, Mick is on there, that undruggable chestnut. But how do you kind of sit down and, and decide what what you're going to go after? In every new approach to uh, to making drugs, there's that Venn diagram of what's technically feasible and what would be therapeutically interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, on the on the biotech side, the the therapeutically interesting is a big thing, and you can sort of talk about that. But like it's the same one for most everybody, whereas the technically feasible is the one that we have the most control over. So um, it's been so the process is very much looking at, at, at how how can we expand or, or solidify that technical fees, technical feasibility portion of the Venn diagram. So um, what we have discovered, but now if you, if you, if you now sort of segue from that sort of preamble to like, well, what are you actually doing that, that answers your question? Um, 
you know, you, so you first of all, you have to find targets. And a lot of these are complete neo targets, right? Like no one's ever heard of these. They know the gene, but they like the target list, the structures are completely novel and have not per se been validated, much less whether the, whether the, um, the pocket is validated. Uh, and so what you find is that you can make these things, you know, these RNAs, and you can screen against them. And we have demonstrated now, because we've, we do this fairly well, we can find hits against these things like every day of the week, right? So um, finding molecules that bind you know, at a sub-micromolar potency um, and selectively to RNAs, I'm prepared to say is a solved problem, all right? Done. The difficulty is that most of those binding events turn out to be biologically unimportant, right? They just don't do anything. You know, the nice thing about proteins is that they're evolved to have pockets that have things to do. And so if you make an ATP analog and block ATP, 500 kinases are not going to be able to phosphorylate something, right? So you're going to see biology. But you bind some molecule to a pocket in the RNA structure, maybe it matters. Well, usually it doesn't. So, um, the MIC program happens to be this. We call these intrinsic inhibitors, where this molecule binds and actually produces a change. Those do happen sometimes. The MIC program is is such a program where the molecule binds and suppresses translation. Very happy about that. Um, and we have quite a bit of science now that that where the data support the the assertion that it is the interaction with that RNA that is actually causative. All right. Um, however, most of the time, we don't see the biology we're looking for. And so we have sort of segued into two sort of um, related technologies or elaborations of the, of the platform. One is uh, to make covalent inhibitors, right? And there's some interesting chemistry challenges there because it is not lost upon us that RNA has a severe shortage of cysteines. Uh, so you have to find some chemistry <laughs> that will that – will, <laughs> Gets you where you need to be from the selectivity and efficacy standpoint. The other is targeted RNA degradation, which is very like protax. That is to say, you're going to have a ligand that binds to the RNA. You're going to have a linker. And off the other end of that linker is a bait molecule, which would recruit some protein that will in some way compromise the function of the RNA. Um, and so what you've done is you say, well, I, I'm not getting... I'm not getting biological activity directly out of the ligand. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring efficacy to the party myself. I'm going to impose an efficacious outcome by either covalency or, or RNA, well, degradation or otherwise modification. Uh, and so that that is sort of the the driving force for a lot of the platform work that's going on. The, the MIC pipeline work is still moving forward, moving ahead pretty well. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And this this idea of these RNA degraders, I, I see this is now where you guys are collaborating with, with Amgen, which of course has Ray Deshays there, the yeah. um, original creator of the Protax. So yeah, I'm very excited to see see what you guys um, you know, present in due course. Uh, okay, Jen. So I want to ask um, you a slightly sort of philosophical question that I've packaged up into kind of a, a June a Dune-esque uh, shape. <laughs> so um, this is then, as founder and creator of Arrakis, um, let's assume you have made good use of your supply of spice and or melange, as, as it's called, the drug that enables you to bend space-time and see into the future. Um, what do you see as the biggest discoveries 
uh, or the areas where there's going to be the biggest discoveries in drug discovery in the next 10 years? I mean, beyond the stuff that we're doing? I, I guess it could include include this. So I, I actually think that this induced proximity um, field, it, it's still expanding, but I think it's already demonstrated that it is um, transformative. All right. So, so there's the original, there's the original sort of suite, you know, you might call it, you know, induced proximity 1.0, which is, which is really about recruiting E3 ligase, which is great. Um, and, you know, I, I know the, our Venice has done a great job. I think, you know, there's some hiccups with, uh, with the, the lead drug, but, you know, I mean, drugs are tough to develop under the best of circumstances. So I, I, I huge props to them. Uh, and I think they'll, they'll get through that. Um, so I think there's going to be a, a, a big plus out of that. But now what's happening is that um, these, these, these induced proximity, people are, are recruiting kinases, they're recruiting um, uh, phosphatases, they're recruiting um, um, occasionally proteases, but also um, dubs, right, to go in the mm. opposite direction to take the ubiquitins off uh, rather than put them on. Um, and I think that just on the protein side, once you, you expand a bit, you begin to see that that the the mechanistic generality of that approach is going to continue to produce new and exciting outcomes. And then I think with uh, RNA, we're going to see something very similar. And, and even in the protein, now there's this, you know, being able to go after sort of ex extracellular targets, um, you know, uh, membrane targets. It's really spectacular. Mm. Um you know, the challenge there will be, you know, you've, you've once again, from a molecular perspective, put yourself into the beyond rule of five space. And so uh, we're going to have to find new ways to, to make sure those molecules are, are well absorbed um, and, and distributed. Um, I think that, so that that's one direction that I, I don't see the end of it right now. I think it's, it's, it's going to expand rather than contract. Um, I also would not underestimate these folks with the mRNA delivery. I mean, we've, of course, all seen how it saved our lives uh, during the pandemic. But I, I'm going to get out there and say I think that's just the beginning. Um, the ability to create a protein, even in fairly limited amounts, is remarkable. And eventually someone's going to figure out how to deliver these things efficiently. And it's going to be transformative. So... Um, those are kind of the directions I I, I see, um, and I and I'm, maybe finally, um, although it's, I don't think it's it's quite come together as coherently as some of the things I just mentioned, but people are willing to take on some very tough drugging problems now that they weren't before. I'm just gobsmacked by the successes of Ivacaftor and its many. Um, analogs, you know, going after the chloride channel. You know, what you're asking is, I want a molecule that's going to go in, it's going to bind to this site, and it's going to kind of wrestle this protein into a, into a, uh, back into a conformation that's more productive. But that's, that's amazing. You know, it's easy to stop things. It's easy to screw things up. But to make things work better, that's amazing. And so, um, you know, I think that people are willing to take on these challenges now, and um, 
and to the extent that we can succeed, begin to address. Um, and that's not even an undruggability problem. That's just a question of can you stretch your mind enough to imagine impacting a target in that way? Um, and then to actually go, yeah, yeah, let's get started. Very, very impressive. Um, so I think it's a very exciting time to be doing drug discovery. I, I agree, Jen. I think, I think there's some really insightful answers there. Um, you know, your first point about induced proximity, uh, I say there's always another tack. Yeah. Hugely exciting time to, I think, be in the, in the field. Um, okay, so we reserve a section on this podcast, Jen, for, for challenges. Uh, there's no journey is free of hurdles and challenges. Um, so perhaps there's some in your career where you know, the lessons <laughs> that you've learned in overcoming these can be inspiring to uh, others. Um, yeah, long lists. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but, you know, uh, you know, some of them are, are just my various so struggles with various kinds of sort of intellectual insecurity, which we now call imposter syndrome. Um, you know, early on, I think I've, I've gotten past that for the most part, uh, at least in that realm. Um, how, how do you overcome in, imposter syndrome? You just hang in there. Yeah. And you, know, you just hang in there and you just kind of begin to appreciate that. Um, you, you begin to appreciate that the people around you look around and go, yeah, they're faking it too. <laughs> yeah, there's occasionally someone who's like just flat out brilliant. You're like, okay, fine, make friends with that person. You don't have to be that person, you know. But you know, there are a lot of people who are 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 you know faking it. Um, and you know, I, I also think that there have been um, you know challenges in my in my life that have impacted my my um, career, my science. Um, probably the most publicly available one for people to read about um, is my transition. Uh, so much of the career that you and I have discussed, I was sailing under the flag that said Russell Penner. Um, mm-hmm. And then starting in 2018, I pulled that flag down and I put up a white, pink and blue flag, which said Jennifer. Um, and so... You know, I will say that it, it was clearly more of a challenge for me than for other people, because at least when the, within the confines of the biotech community, that was, you know, widely accepted. And I, I can't say that there's been a lot of, of any real blowback from that that, that I'm aware of. Uh, on the other hand, you know, you it means you got to show up at work terrified uh, yeah. and, uh, and and yet you got to you got to go to that meeting and say something useful. <laughs> yeah, I read Mike Gilman's um, piece on Arrakis, which I think was probably one of the first um, moments that it, w- it was publicized. And his, yeah. his um, you know, account of when you, when you told him, it, it was a yeah. really great story. And you could just feel the support. Uh, yeah. I think it really, you know, acts as a, as a precedent, you know, that's for others in, in senior leadership positions, how they should, should respond in these situations. I thought it was, it was a fantastic story. Oh yeah, thanks. I mean, Mike did a great job. You know, he, um, you know, it's 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 not that there weren't interesting moments in those conversations. Besides the one that 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 particular dinner that's reported on, it's not that we certainly find ways outside of the transition to irritate each other. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, we've been working together for years and years, and so it's a complicated relationship, and that's fine. You know, Um, 
but in terms of of the transition, he's he's just been uniformly supportive, um, and in ways that are both publicly visible and some ways that are not publicly visible. And so, uh, and and I should say broadly, the team has been very supportive. Um, and I was worried that. Um, so I transitioned in the summer of 18, and then we had to start going out in the fall and, mm-hmm. and pitching for the, the B round. You know, and I didn't want to let the team down, so I was very worried about how that would go. But in fact, um, you know, I found the community to be pretty receptive, um, you know, so it, it, it worked out fairly well. Um, so you're Jennifer Petter, um, founder and chief innovation officer of, of Arrakis Therapeutics, but what part scientist and what part entrepreneur are you now <laughs> like scientists is something i you, you, like you set out in that path as a child um and i think entrepreneur for me is something i kind of stumbled into uh, because it was like the path that was required to do the science that i thought was fun right so in some ways you can see being on for me being an entrepreneur <clears throat> is just another way of doing fundraising so, so when you're an when you're an assistant professor, you write to the NIH and the NSF and et cetera, and you get money from them. Um, and when you're at a big company, you have to go to meetings and per- persuade senior management that they should, you know, not cut your budget. Um, and when you're at a startup company, you have to go to investors and explain to them that 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 they're going to do well by doing good uh, with your company, your technology. So. Um, to me, there's a continuum of sort of the effort of explanation and persuasion in all of those situations. Um, and so um, so to me, entrepreneurship is, in a weird sort of way, entrepreneurship is almost an extension of teaching. Um, and so, um, you know, it's not for everybody, but I actually, like the idea of going to JP Morgan and giving 20 pitches, love it. Just love it um, and love explaining things to people as best I can and trying to answer their questions. Um, and um, so if that's what being an entrepreneur is, well, then I just I must love it. So. Yeah, good answer. Um, OK, Jen, so we're kind of coming towards the end, but we do have one final feature on the podcast, which is a something fun to, to finish feature. Um, and you might have an idea already about kind of what this this is, but it's um a game of true or, or false, real or, or not real, where uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to read to you some science paper titles. Some of these have appeared in peer-reviewed journals, and some of them are completely made up. Um, okay. We've got some people who are very good at making up paper titles, so it's not, <laughs> not as easy as you might think. Okay. Sound good. So you just got to tell me which one the, the real one is. Are, are they, is it multiple choice or is it just binary? So there'll be two options. I'll read read one out, read another one out. One of them's true. You tell me which one. Okay, sounds true. great. Okay, and I've tried to theme these as well. So there's some sci-fi in here. There's a few nods to June. So um, yeah, see what you think. Okay, uh, number one then. Um, Pink Phalloidon, Dark Side of the Cell, Development of Next Generation Fluorescent Cytoskeleton Probes. That's one. Uh, and the other one is development of an acetylcholinesterase-linked biosensor system for neurisotoxin isolated from sandworms. <laughs> I'm going to say the first one's real. 
it's not actually. Oh it's, my the, God. Uh, it's the Sandworms. Uh, that was published in 1991 uh, in oh the Journal gosh. of Japanese Society of Scientific Fisheries. <laughs> oh gosh, you know, I, I let my you subscription that one? <laughs> my subscription lapsed. I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> okay, uh, number two. Uh, do shoot the messenger new therapeutic modalities for targeting messenger RNA. Uh, and the other one, how to train your oncolytic virus, the immunological sequel. <sighs> I'm going to get this wrong. I'm going to say the second one is true. No, it's the other one. <laughs> it's the, uh... No, sorry, actually, Jen, sorry. I, 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 read, I read that wrong. It is. You are right. The oh, okay, okay, okay. Right. Sorry, I was, getting, I was getting ahead of myself. Yeah. <laughs> okay, number, number three. Um, to pee or not to pee, a review of envenomation and treatment in European jellyfish species. Uh, and then the other part... The Lively World of Dead Things, a study of the fascinating behaviors of decomposing organisms. I'm going to say the first one's true. Yeah, it <laughs> is. Yeah. That's, a, <laughs> that's a great a great title. That's from um, Marine Drugs in 2016. Oh my gosh. Okay, so sci-fi ones. Uh, anticipating the aging trajectories of superheroes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, and next part, the impact of time travel on the aging process, a retrospective study. <laughs> I'm going to say the first one's true. It is, yeah. yeah. You're right again. Um, yeah, that was in the BMJ in 2021. Oh, my gosh. And okay, last, last round. Um, this has got kind of a cancer theme. So um, first one. The sting is dead. Long live the sting. Uh, and second part, taking the mick out of cancer toward therapeutic strategies to directly inhibit C-mick. I'm going to say the first one's true. It's not. It's the second one there. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it, the title itself, actually, the sting one, that was in a, in a blog post recently looking at the deal between Masana and GSK for their, um, oh, oh, you know, okay. their, sting, their sting agonist. Um, but yeah, that, that was pretty good. I think you got, was it three or four? I, I wasn't writing them down, Jen. Sorry. I, <laughs> you did pretty good. <laughs> okay, good, good. I, I was worried I was going to be like, oh, and five or whatever. Um, <laughs> and, uh, no, I'm, I, I'm impressed. Um Okay, so before we round out then, Jen, this, this podcast is obviously called Back of the Napkin, and we ask our guests to uh, leave their own personal scribble on a, a napkin that we keep and we pin up on the wall, uh, and we'll take a picture and put it on social media when we release this podcast. And it's a nice memory of the guests who we've had on. So uh, you'll hopefully receive this um, yeah. soon. If, if you could do your drawing and send it over, that would be... Okay, I will... I will... I'll give that some some work. I, yeah. Well, yeah. I and I'm sure everyone else will look forward to uh, look forward to seeing it. So, um, I think all that's left then, Jen, is me to thank you enormously for being on. It's been uh, it's been great having you on. I really enjoyed the discussion. Yeah. W and where are the hot wings? Weren't there supposed to be hot wings with this? Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're on the way. <laughs> oh, that's a different show. That's right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
So this has been huge fun. Um, thank you very much for inviting me, and I will um, look forward to to the the, the napkin challenge. <laughs> Thanks, Jen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Back of the Napkin. To hear more stories of innovation and discovery just like this, subscribe to Back of the Napkin on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your friends, colleagues, or lab mates. Back of the Napkin is made possible by Biotechni, where science intersects innovation. Biotechni is a supplier of high quality and innovative tools for life science research, therapeutic manufacturing, clinical diagnostics, and more. They encompass brands like R&D Systems, Tokris Bioscience, Novus Biologicals, Protein Simple, Advanced Cell Diagnostics, Exosome Diagnostics, and a surgeon to name some. To learn more, you can visit the website at biotechni.com. That's bio-techni.com. Dot com.